Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, The Isabels, Chapter Seven, Section One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter Seven, Section One. It was part of what Decoud would have called his sane materialism that he did not believe in the possibility of friendship between man and woman. The one exception he allowed confirmed, he maintained, that absolute rule. Friendship was possible between brother and sister, meaning by friendship the frank unreserve as before another human being of thoughts and sensations, or the objectless and necessary sincerity of one's innermost life trying to react upon the profound sympathies of another existence. His favourite sister, the handsome, slightly arbitrary and resolute angel, ruling the father and mother Deku in the first-floor apartments of a very fine Parisian house, was the recipient of Martin Deku's confidences as to his thoughts, actions, purposes, doubts and even failures. Prepare our little circle in Paris for the birth of another South American republic. One more or less, what does it matter? They may come into the world like evil flowers on a hotbed of rotten institutions, but the seed of this one has germinated in your brother's brain, and that will be enough for your devoted ascent. I am writing this to you by the light of a single candle in a sort of inn near the harbour, kept by an Italian called Viola, a protégé of Mrs Gould. The whole building, which, for all I know, may have been contrived by a conquistador farmer of the pearl fishery three hundred years ago, is perfectly silent. So is the plain between the town and the harbour. Silent, but not so dark as the house, because the pickets of Italian workmen guarding the railway have lighted little fires all along the line. It was not so quiet around here yesterday. We had an awful riot a sudden outbreak of the populace, which was not suppressed till late today. Its object, no doubt, was loot, and that was defeated, as you may have learned already, from the cablegram sent via San Francisco and New York last night, when the cables were still open. You have read already there that the energetic action of the Europeans of the railway has saved the town from destruction, and you may believe that. I wrote out the cable myself. We have no Reuters agency man here. I have also fired at the mob from the windows of the club in company with some other young men of position. Our object was to keep the colour de la Constitution clear for the exodus of the ladies and children who have taken refuge on board a couple of cargo ships now in the harbour here. That was yesterday. You should also have learned from the cable that the missing president, Ribiera, who had disappeared after the Battle of Santa Marta, has turned up here in Sulaco by one of those strange coincidences that are almost incredible, riding on a lame mule into the very midst of the street fighting. It appears that he fled in company of a muleteer called Bonifacio across the mountains from the threats of Montero into the arms of an enraged mob. The Capitas of Cargadores, that Italian sailor of whom I have written to you before, has saved him from an ignoble death. That man seems to have a particular talent for being on the spot whenever there is something picturesque to be done. He was with me at four o'clock in the morning at the offices of the poor veneer, where he had turned up so early in order to warn me of the coming trouble, and also to assure me that he would keep his cargadores on the side of order. 
When the full daylight came, we were looking together at the crowd on foot and on horseback, demonstrating on the plaza and shying stones at the windows of the Intendencia. Nostroma, that is the name they call him by here, was pointing out to me his cargadores interspersed in the mob. The sun shines late upon Salaco, for it has first to climb above the mountains. In that clear morning light, brighter than twilight, Nostromo saw right across the vast plaza, at the end of the street beyond the cathedral, a mounted man apparently in difficulties with a yelling knot of leperos. At once he said to me, That's a stranger. What is it they are doing to him? Then he took out the silver whistle he is in the habit of using on the wharf, this man seems to disdain the use of any metal less precious than silver, and blew into it twice, evidently a preconcerted signal for his cargadores. He ran out immediately and they rallied round him. I ran out too, but it was too late to follow them and help in the rescue of the stranger whose animal had fallen. I was set upon at once as a hated aristocrat and was only too glad to get into the club where Don Jaime Burgess, you may remember him visiting at our house in Paris some three years ago, thrust a sporting gun into my hands. They were already firing from the windows. There were little heaps of cartridges lying about on the open card tables. I remember a couple of overturned chairs, some bottles rolling on the floor amongst the packs of cards scattered suddenly as the caballeros rose from their game to open fire upon the mob. Most of the young men had spent the night at the club in the expectation of some such disturbance. In two of the candelabra on the consoles, the candles were burning down in their sockets. A large iron nut, probably stolen from the railway workshops, flew in from the street as I entered and broke one of the large mirrors set in the wall. I noticed also one of the club servants tied up hand and foot with the cords of the curtain and flung in a corner. I have a vague recollection of Don Jaime assuring me hastily that the fellow had been detected putting poison into the dishes at supper. But I remember distinctly he was shrieking for mercy without stopping at all, continuously, and so absolutely disregarded that nobody even took the trouble to gag him. The noise he made was so disagreeable that I had half a mind to do it myself, but there was no time to waste on such trifles. I took my place at one of the windows and began firing. I didn't learn till later in the afternoon whom it was that Nostromo, with his cargadores and some Italian workmen as well, had managed to save from those drunken rascals. That man has a peculiar talent when anything striking to the imagination has to be done. I made that remark to him afterwards when we met after some sort of order had been restored in the town, and the answer he made rather surprised me. He said, quite moodily, "'And how much do I get for that, senor?' Then it dawned upon me that perhaps this man's vanity has been satiated by the adulation of the common people and the confidence of his superiors. Teku paused to light a cigarette. Then, with his head still over his writing, he blew a cloud of smoke which seemed to rebound from the paper. He took up the pencil again. That was yesterday evening on the plaza, while he sat on the steps of the cathedral, his hands between his knees holding the bridle of his famous silver-grey mare. He had led his body of cargadores splendidly all day long. He looked fatigued. I don't know how I looked. Very dirty, I suppose. But I suppose I also looked pleased. From the time the fugitive president had been got off to the SS Minerva, the tide of success had turned against the mob. 
They had been driven off the harbour and out of the better streets of the town, into their own maze of ruins and tolderias. You must understand that this riot, whose primary object was undoubtedly the getting hold of the San Tome silver stored in the lower rooms of the custom house, besides the general looting of the Ricos, had acquired a political colouring from the fact of two deputies to the provincial assembly, Senores Gamacho and Fuentes, both from Bolson, putting themselves at the head of it. Late in the afternoon, it is true, when the mob, disappointed in their hopes of loot, made a stand in the narrow streets to the cries of Viva la Libertad! Down with feudalism! I wonder what they imagine feudalism to be. Down with the Goths and paralytics! I suppose the Signores Gomacho and Fuentes knew what they were doing. They are prudent gentlemen. In the assembly they called themselves moderates and opposed every energetic measure with philanthropic pensiveness. At the first rumours of Montero as victory, they showed a subtle change of the pensive temper and began to defy poor Don Juste Lopez in his presidential tribune with an effrontery to which the poor man could only respond by a dazed smoothing of his beard and the ringing of the presidential bell. Then, when the downfall of the Ribierist cause became confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt, they have blossomed into convinced liberals, acting together as if they were Siamese twins, and ultimately taking charge, as it were, of the riot in the name of Monterist principles. Their last move of eight o'clock last night was to organise themselves into a Monterist committee, which sits, as far as I know, in a posada kept by a retired Mexican bullfighter, a great politician too, whose name I have forgotten. Thence they have issued a communication to us, the Goths and Paralytics of the Amarilla Club, who have our own committee, inviting us to come to some provisional understanding for a truce, in order they have the impudence to say that the noble cause of liberty should not be stained by the criminal excesses of conservative selfishness. As I came out to sit with Nostromo on the cathedral steps, the club was busy considering a proper reply in the principal room, littered with exploded cartridges, with a lot of broken glass, blood smears, candlesticks and all sorts of wreckage on the floor. But all this is nonsense. Nobody in the town has any real power except the railway engineers, whose men occupy the dismantled houses acquired by the company for their town station on one side of the plaza, and Nostromo, whose cargadores were sleeping under the arcades along the front of Anzani's shops. A fire of broken furniture out of the Intendencia saloons, mostly gilt, was burning on the plaza, in a high flame swaying right upon the statue of Charles the Fourth. The dead body of a man was lying on the steps of the pedestal, his arms thrown wide open and his sombrero covering his face, the attention of some friends, perhaps. The light of the flames touched the foliage of the first trees on the Almeida and played on the end of a side street nearby, blocked up by a jumble of ox carts and dead bullocks. Sitting on one of the carcasses, a lapero muffled up, smoked a cigarette. It was a truce, you understand. The only other living being on the plaza beside ourselves was a cargador walking to and fro with a long bare knife in his hand, like a sentry before the arcades where his friends were sleeping. And the only other spot of light in the dark town were the lighted windows of the club at the corner of the calle. After having written so far, Don Martin Decoux, the exotic dandy of the Parisian boulevard, got up and walked across the sanded floor of the café at one end of the Albergo of United Italy, 
kept by Giorgio Viola, the old companion of Garibaldi. The highly coloured lithograph of the faithful hero seemed to look dimly in the light of one candle at the man with no faith in anything except the truth of his own sensations. Looking out of the window, Decoud was met by a darkness so impenetrable that he could see neither the mountains nor the town nor yet the buildings near the harbour, and there was not a sound, as if the tremendous obscurity of the placid gulf spreading from the waters over the land had made it dumb as well as blind. Presently Decoud felt a light tremor of the floor and a distant clank of iron. A bright white light appeared, deep in the darkness, growing bigger with a thundering noise. The rolling stock, usually kept on the sidings in Rinson, was being run back to the yards for safe keeping. Like a mysterious stirring of the darkness behind the headlight of the engine, the train passed in a gust of hollow uproar by the end of the house, which seemed to vibrate all over in response. And nothing was clearly visible but, on the end of the last flat car, a negro, in white trousers and naked to the waist, swinging a blazing torch-basket incessantly with a circular movement of his bare arm. Decoud did not stir. Behind him, on the back of the chair from which he had risen, hung his elegant Parisian overcoat with a pearl-grey silk lining. But when he turned back to come to the table, the candlelight fell upon a face that was grimy and scratched. His rosy lips were blackened with heat, the smoke of gunpowder. Dirt and rust tarnished the lustre of his short beard. His shirt-collar and cuffs were crumpled. The blue silken tie hung down his breast like a rag, a greasy smudge crossed his white brow. He had not taken off his clothing, nor used water, except to snatch a hasty drink greedily, for some forty hours. An awful restlessness had made him its own, had marked him with all the signs of desperate strife, and put a dry, sleepless stare into his eyes. He murmured to himself in a hoarse voice, I wonder if there's any bread here looked vaguely about him, then dropped into the chair and took the pencil up again. He became aware that he had not eaten anything for many hours. It occurred to him that no one could understand him so well as his sister. In the most sceptical heart there lurks, at such moments, when the chances of existence are involved, a desire to leave a correct impression of the feelings, like a light by which the action may be seen when personality is gone, gone where no light of investigation can ever reach the truth which every death takes out of the world. Therefore, instead of looking for something to eat or trying to snatch an hour or so of sleep, Deku was filling the pages of a large pocket-book with a letter to his sister. In the intimacy of that intercourse he could not keep out his weariness, his great fatigue, the close touch of his bodily sensations. He began again as if he were talking to her. With almost an illusion of her presence he wrote the phrase, I am very hungry. I have the feeling of a great solitude around me, he continued. Is it perhaps because I am the only man with a definite idea in his head, in the complete collapse of every resolve, intention and hope about me? But the solicitude is also very real. All the engineers are out and have been for two days, looking after the property of the National Central Railway, of that great Costaguana undertaking which is to put money into the pockets of Englishmen, Frenchmen, Americans, German and God knows who else. The silence about me is ominous. 
There is above the middle part of this house a sort of first floor with narrow openings like loopholes for windows, probably used in old times for the better defence against the savages, when the persistent barbarism of our native continent did not wear the black coats of politicians, but went about yelling half-naked with bows and arrows in its hands. The woman of the house is dying up there, I believe, all alone with her old husband. There is a narrow staircase, the sort of staircase one man could easily defend against a mob leading up there, and I have just heard through the thickness of the wall the old fellow going down into their kitchen for something or other. It was a sort of noise a mouse might make behind the plaster of a wall. All the servants they had ran away yesterday and have not returned yet, if ever they do. For the rest, there are only two children here, two girls. The father has sent them downstairs and they have crept into this cafe, perhaps because I am here. They huddle together in a corner, in each other's arms. I just noticed them a few minutes ago and I feel more lonely than ever. Deku turned half round in his chair and asked, Is there any bread here? Linda's dark head was shaken negatively in response, above the fair head of her sister nestling on her breast. You couldn't get me some bread, insisted Deku. The child did not move. He saw her large eyes stare at him very dark from the corner. You're not afraid of me, he said. No, said Linda, we are not afraid of you. You came here with Jean Batista. You mean Nostromo, said Deku. The English call him so, but that is no name either for man or beast, said the girl, passing her hand gently over her sister's hair. But he lets people call him so, remarked Deku. Not in this house, retorted the child. Ah, well, I shall call him the Capitas, then. Deku gave up the point, and after writing steadily for a while, turned round again. When do you expect him back, he asked. After he brought you here, he rode off to fetch the senor doctor from the town for mother. He will be back soon. He stands a good chance of getting shot somewhere on the road, Deku muttered to himself audibly, and Linda declared in her high-pitched voice, Nobody would dare to fire a shot at Jean Batista. You believe that, asked Deku, do you? I know it, said the child with conviction. There is no one in this place brave enough to attack Jean Batista. It doesn't require much bravery to pull a trigger behind a bush, muttered Deku to himself. Fortunately, the night is dark, or there would be but little chance of saving the silver of the mine. He turned again to his pocket-book, glanced back through the pages, and again started his pencil. That was the position yesterday, after the Minerva with the fugitive president had gone out of the harbour, and the rioters had been driven back into the side lanes of the town. I sat on the steps of the cathedral with Nostromo, after sending out the cable message for the information of a more or less attentive world. Strangely enough, though the officers of the cable company are in the same building as the poor veneer, the mob, which has thrown my presses out of the window and scattered the type all over the plaza, has been kept from interfering with the instruments on the other side of the courtyard. As I sat talking with Nostromo, Bernhardt, the telegraphist, came out from under the arcade with a piece of paper in his hand. The little man had tied himself up to an enormous sword and was hung all over with revolvers. He is ridiculous, but the bravest German of his size that ever tapped the key of a Morse transmitter. He had received the message from Kaita reporting the transports with Barrios's army just entering the port and ending with the words, 
the greatest enthusiasm prevails. I walked off to drink some water at the fountain, and I was shot at from the Almeida by somebody hiding behind a tree. But I drank and didn't care. With Barrios in Caeta and the great Cordillera between us and Montero's victorious army, I seemed, notwithstanding Mrs. Gamacho and Fuentes, to hold my new state in the hollow of my hand. I was ready to sleep, but when I got as far as the Casa Gould, I found the patio full of wounded laid out on straw. Lights were burning, and in that enclosed courtyard on that hot night a faint odour of chloroform and blood hung about. At one end Dr. Monigham, the doctor of the mine, was dressing the wounds. At the other, near the stairs, Father Corbelin, kneeling, listened to the confession of a dying cargador. Mrs. Gould was walking about through the shambles with a large bottle in one hand and a lot of cotton wool in the other. She just looked at me and never even winked. A camarista was following her, also holding a bottle, and sobbing gently to herself. I busied myself for some time in fetching water from the cistern for the wounded. Afterwards I wandered upstairs, meeting some of the first ladies of Salaco, paler than I had ever seen them before, with bandages over their arms. Not all of them had fled to the ships. A good many had taken refuge for the day in the Casa Gould. On the landing, a girl with her hair half down was kneeling against the wall under the niche where stands a Madonna in blue robes and a gilt crown on her head. I think it was the eldest Miss Lopez. I couldn't see her face, but I remember looking at the high French heel of her little shoe. She did not make a sound. She did not stir. She was not sobbing. She remained there perfectly still, all black against the white wall, a silent figure of passionate piety. I am sure she was no more frightened than the other white-faced ladies I met carrying bandages. One was sitting on the top step, tearing a piece of linen hastily into strips, the young wife of an elderly man of fortune here. She interrupted herself to wave her hand to my bow, as though she were in her carriage on the Almeida. The women of our country are worth looking at during a revolution. The rouge and pearl powder fall off, together with that passive attitude towards the outer world which education, tradition and custom impose upon them from the earliest infancy. I thought of your face, which from your infancy had the stamp of intelligence instead of that patient and resigned caste which appears when some political commotion tears down the veil of cosmetics and usage. In the great sala upstairs a sort of junta of notables was sitting, the remnant of the vanished provincial assembly. Don José López had had half his beard singed off at the muzzle of a trabuco loaded with slugs, of which every one missed him providentially. And as he turned his head from side to side, it was exactly as if there had been two men inside his frock coat, one nobly whiskered and solemn, the other untidy and scared. They raised a cry of, Decou, Don Martin, at my entrance. I asked them, What are you deliberating upon, gentlemen? There did not seem to be any president, though Don José Avellano sat at the head of the table. They all answered together, On the preservation of life and property. Till the new officials arrived, Don José explained to me, with the solemn sight of his face offered to my view. It was as if a stream of water had been poured upon my glowing idea of a new state. There was a hissing sound in my ears, and the room grew dim, as if suddenly filled with vapour. I walked up to the table blindly as though I had been drunk. 
You are deliberating upon surrender, I said. They all sat still with their noses over the sheet of paper each had before him. God only knows why. Only Don Jose hid his face in his hands, muttering, Never, never. But as I looked at him, it seemed to me that I could have blown him away with my breath. He looked so frail, so weak, so worn out. Whatever happens, he will not survive. The deception is too great for a man of his age. And hasn't he seen the sheets of fifty years of misrule, which we have begun printing on the presses of the poor veneer, littering the plaza, floating in the gutters, fired out as wads for trabucos loaded with handfuls of type, blown in the wind, trampled in the mud? I have seen pages floating upon the very waters of the harbour. It would be unreasonable to expect him to survive. It would be cruel. Do you know, I cried, what surrender means to you, to your women, to your children, to your property? I declaimed for five minutes without drawing breath, it seems to me, harping on our best chances, on the ferocity of Montero, whom I made out to be as great a beast as I have no doubt he would like to be if he had intelligence enough to conceive a systematic reign of terror. And then, for another five minutes or more, I poured out an impassioned appeal to their courage and manliness with all the passion of my love for Antonia. For if ever man spoke well, it would be from a personal feeling, denouncing an enemy, defending himself, or pleading for what really may be dearer than life. My dear girl, I absolutely thundered at them. It seemed as if my voice would burst the walls asunder, and when I stopped I saw all their scared eyes looking at me dubiously. And that was all the effect I had produced. Only Don Jose's head had sunk lower and lower on his breast. I bent my ear to his withered lips and made out his whisper something like, In God's name then, Martin, my son. I don't know exactly. There was the name of God in it, I am certain. It seems to me I have caught his last breath, the breath of his departing soul on his lips. He lives yet, it is true. I have seen him since, but it was only a senile body lying on its back, covered to the chin with open eyes and so still that you might have said it was breathing no longer. I left him thus, with Antonia kneeling by the side of the bed, just before I came to this Italian's posada, where the ubiquitous death is also waiting. But I know that Don Jose has really died there, in the Casa Gould, with that whisper urging me to attempt what no doubt his soul, wrapped up in the sanctity of diplomatic treaties and solemn declarations, must have abhorred. I had exclaimed very loud, There is never any God in a country where men will not help themselves. Meanwhile, Don Juste had begun a pondered oration whose solemn effect was spoiled by the ridiculous disaster to his beard. I did not wait to make it out. He seemed to argue that Montero's, he called him the general, intentions were probably not evil, though, he went on, that distinguished man, only a week ago we used to call him a gran bestia, was perhaps mistaken as to the true means. As you may imagine, I didn't stay to hear the rest. I know the intentions of Montero's brother, Pedrito the Guerriero, whom I exposed in Paris some years ago in a café frequented by South American students where he tried to pass himself off for a secretary of legation. He used to come in and talk for hours, twisting his felt hat in his hairy paws, and his ambition seemed to become a sort of Duc de Morny to a sort of Napoleon. Already then he used to talk of his brother in inflated terms, he seemed fairly safe from being found out because the students, all of the Blanco families, did not, as you may imagine, frequent the legation. 
It was only Deku, a man without faith and principles, as they used to say, that went in there sometimes for the sake of the fun, as it were, to an assembly of trained monkeys. I know his intentions. I have seen him change the plates at table. Whoever is allowed to live on in terror, I must die the death. No, I didn't stay to the end to hear Don Jose Lopez trying to persuade himself in a grave oration of the clemency and justice and honesty and purity of the brothers Montero. I went out abruptly to seek Antonia. I saw her in the gallery. As I opened the door, she extended to me her clasped hands. What are they doing in there? she asked. Talking, I said, with my eyes looking into hers. Yes, yes, but... Empty speeches, I interrupted her, hiding their fears behind imbecile hopes. They are all great parliamentarians there, on the English model, as you know. I was so furious that I could hardly speak. She made a gesture of despair. Through the door I held a little ajar behind me. We heard Don Juste's measured, mouthing monotone go on from phrase to phrase like a sort of awful and solemn madness. After all, the democratic aspirations have perhaps their legitimacy. The ways of human progress are inscrutable, and if the fate of the country is in the hand of the Monteros, we ought... I crashed the door to on that. It was enough. It was too much. There was never a beautiful face expressing more horror and despair than the face of Antonia. I couldn't bear it. I seized her wrists. Have they killed my father in there? she asked. Her eyes blazed with indignation, but as I looked on, fascinated, the light in them went out. It's a surrender, I said. And I remember I was shaking her wrists, I held apart in my hands. But it's more than talk. Your father told me to go on, in God's name. My dear girl, there is in that Antonia which would make me believe in the feasibility of anything. One look at her face is enough to set my brain on fire. And yet I love her as any other man would, with the heart, and with that alone. She is more to me than his church to Father Corbelan. The Grand Vicar disappeared last night from the town, perhaps gone to join the band of Hernandez. She is more to me than his precious mind to that sentimental Englishman. I won't speak of his wife. She may have been sentimental once. The Santome mind stands now between those two people. Your father himself, Antonia, I repeated. Your father, do you understand, has told me to go on. She averted her face, and in a pained voice, He has, she cried. Then indeed I fear he will never speak again. She freed her wrist from my clutch and began to cry in her handkerchief. I disregarded her sorrow. I would rather see her miserable than not see her at all, never any more, for whether I escaped or stayed to die, there was for us no coming together, no future. And that being so, I had no pity to waste upon the passing moments of her sorrow. I sent her off in tears to fetch Donna Emilia and Don Carlos too. Their sentiment was necessary to the very life of my plan, the sentimentalism of the people that will never do anything for the sake of their passionate desire unless it comes to them clothed in the fair robes of an idea. Late at night we formed a small hunter of four, the two women, Don Carlos and myself, in Mrs Gould's blue and white boudoir. El Rey de Salaco thinks himself, no doubt, a very honest man, and so he is if one could look behind his taciturnity. Perhaps he thinks that this alone makes his honesty unstained. Those Englishmen live on illusions which somehow or other help them to get a firm hold of the substance. 
when he speaks it is by a rare yes or no that seems as impersonal as the words of an oracle. But he could not impose on me by his dumb reserve. I knew what he had in his head. He had his mind in his head, and his wife had nothing in her head but his precious person, which he has bound up with the gold concession and tied up to that little woman's neck. No matter. The thing was to make him present the affair to Holroyd, the steel and silver king, in such a manner as to secure his financial support. At that time, last night, just twenty-four hours ago, we thought the silver of the mine safe in the custom-house vaults till the northbound steamer came to take it away. And as long as the treasure flowed north without a break, that utter sentimentalist Holroyd would not drop his idea of introducing not only justice, industry, peace to the benighted continents, but also that pet dream of his of a purer form of Christianity. Later on, the principal European, really in Sulaco, the engineer-in-chief of the railway, came riding up the Calle from the harbour and was admitted to our conclave. Meantime, the hunter of the notables in the great sala was still deliberating. Only one of them had run out in the corridor to ask the servant whether something to eat couldn't be sent in. The first words the engineer-in-chief said as he came into the boudoir were, What is your house, dear Mrs. Gould? A war hospital below and apparently a restaurant above. I saw them carrying trays full of good things into the sala. And here in this boudoir, I said, you behold the inner cabinet of the Occidental Republic that is to be. He was so preoccupied that he didn't smile at that, he didn't even look surprised. He told us that he was attending to the general dispositions for the defence of the railway property at the railway yards when he was sent for to go into the railway telegraph office. The engineer of the railhead at the foot of the mountains wanted to talk to him from his end of the wire. There was nobody in the office but himself and the operator of the railway telegraph who read off the clicks aloud as the tape coiled its length upon the floor and the purport of that talk, clicked nervously from a wooden shed in the depths of the forests, had informed the chief that President Ribeiro had been, or was being, pursued. This was news indeed to all of us in Sulaco. Ribeiro himself, when rescued, revived and soothed by us, had been inclined to think that he had not been pursued. Ribeira had yielded to the urgent solicitations of his friends and had left the headquarters of his discomfited army alone under the guidance of Bonifacio, the muleteer, who had been willing to take the responsibility with the risk. He had departed at daybreak of the third day. His remaining forces had melted away during the night. Bonifacio and he rode hard on horses towards the Cordillera, then they obtained mules entered the passes, and crossed the Paramo of Ivi just before a freezing blast swept over that stony plateau, burying in a drift of snow the little shelter-hut of stones in which they had spent the night. Afterwards poor Ribiera had many adventures, got separated from his guide, lost his mount, struggled down to the campo on foot, and if he had not thrown himself on the mercy of a ranchero would have perished a long way from Salaco. That man, who as a matter of fact recognised him at once, let him have a fresh mule, which the fugitive, heavy and unskilful, had ridden to death. And it was true he had been pursued by a party commanded by no less a person than Pedro Montero, the brother of the general. The cold wind of the Paramo luckily caught the pursuers on the top of the pass. Some few men and all the animals perished in the icy blast. The stragglers died, but the main body kept on. 
They found poor Bonifacio lying half-dead at the foot of a snow slope and bayoneted him promptly in the true Civil War style. They would have had Ribiera too if they had not for some reason or other turned off the track of the old Camino Real only to lose their way in the forest at the foot of the lower slopes. And there they were, at last, having stumbled in unexpectedly upon the construction camp. The engineer at the railhead told his chief by wire that he had Pedro Montero absolutely there, in the very office, listening to the clicks. He was going to take possession of Sulaco in the name of the democracy. He was very overbearing. His men slaughtered some of the railway company's cattle without asking leave and went to work broiling the meat on the embers. Pedrito made many pointed inquiries as to the silver mine and what had become of the product of the last six months working. He had said peremptorily, Ask your chief up there by wire, he ought to know. Tell him that Don Pedro Montero, chief of the Campo and minister of the interior of the new government, desires to be correctly informed. He had his feet wrapped up in blood-stained rags, a lean, haggard face, ragged beard and hair, and had walked in limping with a crooked branch of a tree for a staff. His followers were perhaps in a worse plight, but apparently they had not thrown away their arms, and at any rate not all their ammunition. Their lean faces filled the door and the windows of the telegraph hut. As it was at the same time the bedroom of the engineer in charge there, Montero had thrown himself on his clean blankets and lain there shivering and dictating requisitions to be transmitted by wire to Salaco. He demanded a train of cars to be sent down at once to transport his men up. To this I answered from my end, the engineer-in-chief related to us, that I dared not risk the rolling stock in the interior, as there had been attempts to wreck trains all along the line several times. I did that for your sake, Gould, said the chief engineer. The answer to this was, in the words of my subordinate, the filthy brute on my bed said, suppose I were to have you shot. To which my subordinate, who it appears was himself operating, remarked that it would not bring the cars up. Upon that, the other, yawning, said, Never mind, there is no lack of horses on the campo, and turning over, went to sleep on Harris's bed. This is why, my dear girl, I am a fugitive tonight. The last wire from Railhead says that Pedro Montero and his men left at daybreak after feeding on asado beef all night. They took all the horses. They will find more on the road. They'll be here in less than thirty hours, and thus Sulaco is no place either for me or the great store of silver belonging to the Gould Concession. But that is not the worst. The garrison of Esmeralda has gone over to the victorious party. We have heard this by means of the telegraphist of the cable company, who came to the Casa Gould in the early morning with the news. In fact, it was so early that the day had not yet quite broken over Sulaco. His colleague in Esmeralda had called him up to say that the garrison, after shooting some of their officers, had taken possession of a government steamer laid up in the harbour. It is really a heavy blow for me. I thought I could depend on every man in this province. It was a mistake. It was a Monterist revolution in Esmeralda, just such as was attempted in Sulaco, only that one came off. The telegraphist was signalling to Bernhardt all the time, and his last transmitted words were, They are bursting in the door and taking possession of the cable office. You are cut off. Can do no more. But, as a matter of fact, he managed somehow to escape the vigilant of his captors, who had tried to stop the communication with the outer world. 
He did manage it. How it was done, I don't know. But a few hours afterwards, he called up Sulaco again. And what he said was, The insurgent army has taken possession of the government transport in the bay and are filling her with troops, with the intention of going round the coast to Sulaco. Therefore look out for yourselves. They will be ready to start in a few hours and may be upon you before daybreak. This is all he could say. They drove him away from his instrument, this time for good, because Bernhardt has been calling up Esmeralda ever since, without getting an answer. After setting these words down in the pocket-book, which he was filling up for the benefit of his sister, Deku lifted his head to listen. But there were no sounds, neither in the room nor in the house, except the drip of the water from the filter into the vast earthenware jar under the wooden stand. And outside the house there was a great silence. Decoud lowered his head again over the pocket-book. "'I am not running away, you understand,' he wrote on. "'I am simply going away with that great treasure of silver, which must be saved at all costs. Pedro Montero from the Campo and the revolted garrison of Esmeralda from the sea are converging upon it. That it is there lying ready for them is only an accident. The real objective is the San Tome mine itself, as you may well imagine.' Otherwise, the Occidental province would have been, no doubt, left alone for many weeks to be gathered at leisure into the arms of the victorious party. Don Carlos Gould will have enough to do to save his mine with its organisation and its people. This imperium and imperio, this wealth-producing thing to which his sentimentalism attaches a strange idea of justice. He holds to it as some men hold to the idea of love or revenge. Unless I am much mistaken in the man, it must remain inviolate or perish by an act of his will alone. A passion has crept into his cold and idealistic life, a passion which I can only comprehend intellectually. A passion that is not like the passions we know, we men of another blood, but it is as dangerous as any of ours. His wife has understood it too. That is why she is such a good ally of mine. She ceases upon all my suggestions with a sure instinct that in the end they make for the safety of the Gould concession, and he defers to her because he trusts her, perhaps, but I fancy rather as if he wished to make up for some subtle wrong, for that sentimental unfaithfulness which surrenders her happiness, her life, to the seduction of an idea. The little woman has discovered that he lives for the mine rather than for her. But let them be to each his fate, shaped by passion or sentiment. The principal thing is that she has backed up my advice to get the silver out of the town, out of the country, at once, at any cost, at any risk. Don Carlos's mission is to preserve, unstained, the fair fame of his mine. Mrs Gould's mission is to save him from the effect of that cold and overmastering passion, which she dreads more than if it were an infatuation for another woman. Nostromo's mission is to save the silver. The plan is to load it into the largest of the company's lighters and send it across the gulf to a small port out of Costaguana territory just on the other side the Azuera where the first northbound steamer will get orders to pick it up. The waters here are calm. We shall slip away into the darkness of the gulf before the Esmeralda rebels arrive and by the time the day breaks over the ocean we shall be out of sight, invisible, hidden by Azuera which itself looks from the Salaco shore like a faint blue cloud on the horizon. The incorruptible Capitas de Cargadores is the man for that work, and I, the man with a passion but without a mission, I go with him to return, to play my part in the fast to the end, and if successful to receive my reward, which no one but Antonio can give me.
I shall not see her again now before I depart. I left her, as I have said, by Don Jose's bedside. The street was dark, the houses shut up, and I walked out of the town in the night. Not a single street lamp had been lit for two days, and the archway of the gate was only a mass of darkness in the vague form of a tower, in which I heard low, dismal groans that seemed to answer the murmurs of a man's voice. I recognised something impassive and careless in its tone, characteristic of that Genoese sailor who, like me, has come casually here to be drawn into the events for which his scepticism as well as mine seems to entertain a sort of passive contempt. The only thing he seems to care for, as far as I've been able to discover, is to be well spoken of, an ambition fit for noble souls, but also a profitable one for an exceptionally intelligent scoundrel. Yes, his very words, to be well spoken of, si, signor. He does not seem to make any difference between speaking and thinking. Is it sheer naiveness or the practical point of view, I wonder? Exceptional individualities always interest me because they are true to the general formula expressing the moral state of humanity. He joined me on the harbour road after I had passed them under the dark archway without stopping. It was a woman in trouble he had been talking to. Through discretion I kept silent while he walked by my side. After a time he began to talk himself. It was not what I expected. It was only an old woman, an old lace-maker, in search of her son, one of the street-sweepers employed by the municipality. Friends had come the day before at daybreak to the door of their hovel, calling him out. He had gone with them, and she had not seen him since. So she had left the food she had been preparing half-cooked on the extinct embers and had crawled out as far as the harbour, where she had heard that some town mozzos had been killed in the morning of the riot. One of the cargadores guarding the customs house had brought out a lantern and had helped her to look at the few dead left lying about there. Now she was creeping back, having failed in her search. So she sat down on the stone seat under the arch, moaning because she was very tired. The Capitaz had questioned her, and, after hearing her broken and groaning tale, had advised her to go and look amongst the wounded in the patio of the Casa Gould. He had also given her a quarter dollar, he mentioned carelessly. "'Why did you do that?' I asked. "'Do you know her?' "'No, senor. I don't suppose I have ever seen her before. How should I? She has not probably been out in the streets for years. She is one of those old women that you find in this country at the back of huts, crouching over fireplaces with a stick on the ground by their side, and almost too feeble to drive away the stray dogs from their cooking pots. Caramba, I could tell by her voice that death had forgotten her. But old or young, they like money and will speak well of the man who gives it to them. He laughed a little. Senor, you should have felt the clutch of her paw as I put the piece in her palm. He paused. My last too, he added. I made no comment. He's known for his liberality and his bad luck at the game of Monte, which keeps him as poor as when he first came here. I suppose, Don Martin, he began in a thoughtful, speculative tone, that the Senor Administrador of Saint Tome will reward me some day if I save his silver. I said that it could not be otherwise, surely. He walked on, muttering to himself, Si, si, without doubt, without doubt. And look you, Signor Martin, what it is to be well spoken of. There is not another man that could have been even thought of for such a thing. I shall get something great for it some day. And let it come soon, he mumbled. Time passes in this country as quick as anywhere else. 
This, Sir Cherie, is my companion in the great escape for the sake of the great cause. He is more naive than shrewd, more masterful than crafty, more generous with his personality than the people who make use of him are with their money, at least that is what he thinks himself, with more pride than sentiment. I am glad I have made friends with him. As a companion, he acquires more importance than he ever had as a sort of minor genius in his way, as an original Italian sailor whom I allowed to come in in the small hours and talk familiarly to the editor of the poor veneer while the paper was going through the press. And it is curious to have met a man for whom the value of life seems to consist in personal prestige. I am waiting for him now. On arriving at the posada kept by Viola, we found the children alone down below and the old Genoese shouted to his countrymen to go and fetch the doctor, otherwise we would have gone on to the wharf, where it appears Captain Mitchell, with some volunteer Europeans and a few picked cargadores, are loading the lighter with the silver that must be saved from Montero's clutches in order to be used for Montero's defeat. Nostromo galloped furiously back towards the town. He has been long gone already. This delay gives me time to talk to you. By the time this pocket-book reaches your hands, much will have happened, but now it is a pause under the hovering wing of death in this silent house buried in the black night, with this dying woman, the two children crouching without a sound, and that old man whom I can hear through the thickness of the wall, passing up and down with a light rubbing noise no louder than a mouse. And I, the only other with them, don't really know whether to count myself with the living or with the dead. Quien sabe, as the people here are prone to say in answer to every question. But no, feeling for you is certainly not dead, and the whole thing, the house, the dark night, the silent children in this dim room, my very presence here, all this is life, must be life, since it is so much like a dream. With the writing of the last line there came upon Decoud a moment of sudden and complete oblivion. He swayed over the table as if struck by a bullet, the next moment he sat up, confused, with the idea that he had heard his pencil roll on the floor. The low door of the café, wide open, was filled with the glare of a torch in which was visible half of a horse switching its tail against the leg of a rider with a long iron spur strapped to the naked heel. The two girls were gone, and Nostromo, standing in the middle of the room, looked at him from under the round brim of the sombrero low down over his brow. End of part second, The Isabels, chapter seven, section one.